0: Listener supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM 820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. John in the first chapter. It's divided up for us um, verses 6 through 8, and then 19 through 28. The verses 6 through 8, we find, is the mention of John in the prologue of the Gospel of John. And the prologue of the Gospel of John is the ultimate fulfillment of the beginning of the book of Genesis. It explains to us this, the process of creation. In the book of Genesis, we have, in the beginning, God created the Spirit of God, hovered over the waters, and God spoke the word. And so we had, at least from the medieval perspective, the Trinity in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In this, then, John is going to focus on the role that the Son has in the creation of the world. And so he starts out, then, in the beginning, the same way the Genesis starts out, in the beginning. But then John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. An affirmation of the first verse of the book of Genesis, but particularizing now the role that the Word is to play. Because certainly in the book of Genesis, God speaking, in other words, God speaking the Word, was the force and the power of creation. So too in John's gospel is he going to identify that word now as Jesus Christ as the son and he is going to affirm the fact that all things were made through him and nothing has without him nothing has been made but then he comes to the sixth verse and he said a man came sent by god and his name was John he came as a witness as a witness to speak for the light and so what was the first what was the very first word that uh, God spoke in the book of Genesis, in the creation of the universe, it was, let there be light. And in that also, it's the one thing that God does not make. He does not create. He speaks the word, and then the word that he speaks is the light. So that now what John is doing in this gospel, is he is arranging for us an identity of the Christ, an identity for the Word. He is the one through whom all things come to be. He is with God. He is God. He is the one through whom all things come to be, and he is the light. And then John comes as a witness to the light, so that everyone might believe through him. He was not the light, only a witness to speak for the light. And so... It's, it's interesting here, too, because there is a vast background in uh, the story of Catholic thought throughout the millennia concerning the reality of the relationship between God and light. We find that uh, that theme comes through. We, we find it in the pillar of fire. We find it in the theophanies of the Old Testament. We find of coming out of the darkness into the light, that Egypt is the darkness, the promised land is the light, and so forth. And then also here, um, not only in Genesis, but in the prologue of John, the light becomes a very, very central reality in the revelation of Jesus Christ and in the work of Jesus Christ, for it is in the light that Jesus is known. And he even says later on, what you've heard in the darkness, to speak in the light. And so that there is this consistent theme that the word is the light. And uh, and that it is through the word, and therefore through the light, that all things that are come to be in order for humanity not just to have something appear to them um, out of the recesses of their own minds. And we know, for instance, that in the community of Qumran, in the Essene community, that the teacher of righteousness and the teacher of light are something that, that they have extracted from their intense study of the Prophets. And so they now we have every right to expect, as the prophets have always been the messengers of God, that now the final prophet is the final messenger of the fullness of God, the God as light, God as word, God as the one through whom all things have come to be. John the Evangelist clings to this identity of John the Baptist, for there is in the prophetic tradition an expectation as well that a prophet will precede the Messiah. For many it was thought that Elijah would return, and we'll see in this gospel that that some people are asking, "Are you the Elijah?" There are other Gospels who who, um, pick up on the Essene doctrine of the prophet who is to come, and they identify him with the Messiah. And for some, therefore, there was an understanding that um, Elijah, the return of Elijah, Elijah would return as Messiah. And so there is a question then, is Jesus the new Elijah, or is John the Baptist the new Elijah? Then we skip in this Gospel to where John, the evangelist, begins to talk about the appearance of John the Baptist in the desert. And this is how he said, this is how John appeared as a witness. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He not only declared, but he declared quite openly, I am not the Christ. Well then, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no, so they said to him, who are you? We must take back an answer to those who sent us. And what have you to say about yourself? So John said, I am, as Isaiah prophesied, the voice of one that cries in the wilderness, makes straight the way of the Lord. So here comes a very important dialogue for early Christianity because obviously John was a charismatic figure. Very honestly, John was a person of great personal um, power, and wisdom and uh, all of those things. Otherwise, the people from Jerusalem and all Judean countryside, as we've already heard, would not be coming to the Jordan to hear him and coming to the Jordan to be baptized by him. And so they are saying now, there was, of course, in Israel at this time a growing sense, a growing sense of the coming of the Messiah. Um, we've we said before, and it's important to remember that not all Jews believed that there would be a Messiah, but there certainly were a significant segment of the population that did. And those who believed there was there, there would be a Messiah were kind of in, in, in an atmosphere at the time of ba- the Baptist in the time of Jesus, of saying, maybe this is the time, maybe, maybe this is, they had a sense. The sense was so strong, again, that the Essenes went out into the desert to try and figure out who they were to recognize and who they were to see as the Messiah. It is from them, for they had a very important influence on early Christianity that these questions are able to be so clearly articulated. Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Who are you? With the hint in the back of the mind that maybe even this is the Christ, maybe even this is the Messiah. And so in the early church, there were groups who had been drawn to the Baptist and had become disciples of the Baptist, who did not transfer that discipleship from the Baptist over to Christ. And so there were several Baptist sects in early Christianity that did not recognize Jesus as Messiah, but followed the Baptist as though he were the Messiah, some believing he was, some believing he was Elijah, some believing he was the prophet who was to announce, but not acknowledging the Christ whom he did announce. And so it's important in John's Gospel, and this is important about John's Gospel also, is that it was written long after the other Gospels, probably close to the end of the hundreds and very close to the to the end then of the, the first century. John had the opportunity to observe a number of things. First of all, he was part of an active Christian community insofar as he was capable before he was sent into exile in Patmos. And probably it's both in Jerusalem and in Ephesus, it seems. And so he doesn't have to explain the, the Last Supper. He doesn't ex- have to explain the history of the institution of the Eucharist because it's a common practice in the community in which he's, he's living. And they have already heard the story of its, of its uh, origin from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And also in the letters of St. Paul. That's why we don't find the institution narratives in John's Gospel. On the other hand, too, he's lived long enough to see the kind of problems that arise within the Christian community. And one of those problems is the persistent presence of the Baptists um, who have followed the one to introduce Christ but have not yet come over to Christ. And they became, in a sense, kind of counter-witnesses to the Messiahship of Christ because they tended to invest that belief in the Baptist himself. So that for John the evangelist, it is very important that he make it clear that John the Baptist himself did not accept this title, that John the Baptist himself did not accept the title of the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet. And, of course, the prophet was part of the Essene expectation. Then they said to him, well, then who are you? And then John goes back into the prophecies again, the prophecies of Isaiah, those prophecies which he seemed particularly well-versed in and perhaps also had mastered the whole of of the corpus of the prophets and especially of the prophecies of Isaiah. And he goes back and he picks up once again a voice that cries in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. The wilderness is a very dramatic kind of image um, because the wilderness is not just the barren wastelands of, of Palestine. The wilderness is not in, in, in our ideas either. The forest lands, the inaccessible lands, all of that. The wilderness is part of that. It is part of the Judean desert. It's part of the area around the Dead Sea. That's part of it. But part of it also is the wilderness that exists within the hearts of humanity that he cries in the wilderness, he cries in this world of unbelief, this world of sin, this world of alienation from source, from origin, from destiny, this world that is set adrift. In fact, is it might even be an apt image for the world in which we live today, a culture that has gone astray, a culture that has lost its way, a culture that is no longer connected to its origin, to its destiny, a culture which no longer knows who it is, no longer has an identity that transcends beyond itself. The wilderness is a perpetual concept, and it has to do not only with place but with human hearts. And then he says, what is he to do with this? He is to make, proclaim to make a straight way for the Lord. In other words, to open the hearts and the eyes of the blind, and so forth. We find this constantly in the prophecies of Isaiah, that uh, to bring the good news to the poor, and to bind up hearts that are broken, the lame walk, and the blind see, and so forth. This is the wilderness that John proclaims the coming of the Christ to, and this is the wilderness that he seeks to prepare. We see that preparation come to life in the reputation that Jesus develops, for instance, so that the blind man cries out to him, you know, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. So there is a connection between the proclamation of John, of the truth of the Messiah, and the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah. Now, In the midst of this, when this confrontation had taken place, when this encounter had taken place, when the Jews sent the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, when John uses the word the Jews, usually it means the Jewish leadership. Um, and so it means one of the uh, leadership bodies in Jerusalem—the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, and so forth—somebody like that, and that he lumps them all together and simply calls them the Jew. There's a there's a great there's a great deal of difficulty, you know, the anti-Semitism of John's Gospel. Well, it's a little stretch to say that because John himself was a semi. John himself was a Jew. And so we have to allow him to use a word in relationship to his own people that he defines and that we don't define for him. He defines the word Jew in his gospel primarily as the leadership of Jerusalem. But in confrontations with the unbelievers within Judaism, he also sometimes refers to the Jews as the unbelievers. And or the unbelievers as the Jews. Never in a sense is it a racial slur and never in a sense is it an ethnic slur. It has everything to do with either position within the community or relationship to the proclamation of the gospel. And it behooves us then to interpret it in that sense. In our hypersensitivity to every difference that humanity has, and our our fear to even so much as mention them in any kind of analytical way, it's very difficult for us to accept John calling the Jews the Jews because for us, in our culture, we have the tendency to to, uh, reinterpret that as an ethnic or a racial slur, which it is not intended to be. But then, when the Jews come out from Jerusalem, and here they say that the, that the Levites and the priests had been sent by the Pharisees, which is a difficult uh, passage because that didn't really work that way. But they put this further question to him. The question is not, therefore, precision. The question is, it is the leadership of the community who is coming to John to demand an explanation of who he is. Why are you baptizing if you are not the Christ and not Elijah and not the prophet? In other words, why are you exercising the right to use this, this ritual Um, that existed within Judaism, existed very strongly among the Essenes at Qumran, but nevertheless was not seen in the same sense that we were, that we see baptism. It was more of an acknowledgment, a recognition of repentance than it was a cause of repentance. And yet they're saying, why are you doing this when it is something that is done with authority? You say you're not the Messiah. You say you're not the prophet Elijah. And you say you're not the prophet prophet expected by the peoples of Qumran. And John replied, I baptize with water. But there stands among you unknown to you the one who is coming after me. And I am not fit to undo his sandal strap. And so what John, now this is in the Gospel of John the Evangelist. This is the Baptist making very, very clear who he is not, and yet who he is. If we distill this and we look at this, then what we do is we find the Baptist acknowledging the fact that he is the last prophet, that he is the one now who is to introduce the new covenant, the Messiah, the new age for humanity. And yet it becomes very clear that the people to whom he is initially sent, at least the leadership of the people to whom he was initially sent, who had the benefit of all of the knowledge of Scripture and of the prophets, failed to recognize him. And John is therefore accusing them of ill will, in a sense, because you have all the tools, you have all the equipment, and yet he is unknown to you you do not recognize him. And this takes us back again, too, to some very, very important lessons about the coming of the Messiah. And those lessons are who did recognize him? Who were the ones, therefore, who followed him? Almost to a person. They were the ones both who knew the scriptures, knew the prophets, and also had lived accordingly to the law, that as they could say with St. Joseph, for instance, he was a just man. They lived according to the law, and they read the scriptures, and they believed the word of God. They were therefore interiorly predisposed to recognize the Messiah when he came. Those who used the law and those who used the scriptures for their own purpose and their own ends, which is kind of what the, the, the heinous crime that the Pharisees and Sadducees and, and the leadership of the Jewish people, the ones that John calls the Jews, that they were the ones who, having had every possibility to do so, they failed to recognize him because their life was not in accord with the revelation of God. For us, that becomes incredibly important that we have dwelling among us the real presence of the living God. We read in the newspapers, well, 70% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence. I don't know if that's true or not true. I certainly do know that at certain local levels that's true. But what does that say to us? that says to us that there is a significant number of our own people among us in our own society, our own culture, who having all the benefits of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Levites and the scribes and all of those people, the information that they need, nevertheless in their hearts fail to recognize what it is telling them. And this, I think, is extremely important for us to grapple with in our own personal lives. Each of us must ask ourselves, what is the deficit in my life of living the Christian life? And to what am I blinded by my indifference or by my descent from recognizing and seeing clearly among us the presence of the living God? This, uh, this is something that we, have to, that we have to deal with all the time in the scriptures. We have a sense, and, and we do a, a lot of it in, in reflecting upon the scriptures, a lot of the historical foundation, a lot of the historical background of the stories and so forth. The danger of that is to anchor it permanently in the distant past, when in fact the gospel is not only anchored in the distant past. It is not anchored permanently in the distant past. For it is a living proclamation. And the Word of God is not just the printed Word. The Word of God is the person of Jesus Christ. And the person of Jesus Christ is as alive and present with us in this very moment as ever he was in ancient Israel. And so the narrative, the proclamation, the good news, the charisma, the gospel is something that is alive and well. It is not evolving in so that it can conform with the curious stages of development that human societies go through, but it is a constant presence to us a constant presence guiding us through these the vagaries of cultural evolution and anchoring us in the person of Jesus Christ in the midst of the trials and the uncertainties of every age of every time of every place so that we cannot allow ourselves only to say that we are only believing Christians if in fact we can quote the scriptures, the words of God. No, we are believing Christians if we acknowledge the existing presence of the living Christ among us, if we know that in sacrament and word in church, that he has traveled with us in his incarnation throughout the history of the story of his people. And that this is why it is so significant and so important that due respect be paid to the reserved presence of the living Christ within our temples, our churches, and that we come to acknowledge and to accept that it is Jesus Christ incarnate who resides in our temples in our tabernacles and Jesus Christ incarnate who comes and enters into our own hearts, our own souls, our own daily lives. And remains therefore a living presence within us, and not a relic of the past. This was one of the great issues that they struggled with. For instance, um, the in in uh, in the Reformation traditions, we see it very strongly. For instance, in the philosophy of Soren Kierkegaard, and uh, how he grapples with the fact: How can we speak or hear Jesus Christ? when in fact he has been dead for thousands of years. And so he says, while we can't, it is a leap of absurdity to believe that we can. The Catholic response to that, articulated beautifully by Romano Guardini, was, yes, I have heard the voice of Jesus. I have heard the voice of Jesus throughout my whole life. I have heard it because it comes from the church through my parents, through the priests, in schools, in lessons, and so forth. So I have heard the voice of Jesus. But if we don't believe that Jesus can speak to us today, the incarnate Lord, in his presence, then we join the crowd. We join the crowd of the ancient, obtuse leaders of the Hebrew people in the days of John and Jesus. We join the crowd that says we have all the information, but it doesn't penetrate into our lives. It doesn't become a part of the story of who I am. It becomes something we control, we own, we manage, we manipulate, but it is not a part of who I am. And this is one of the constant struggles in Catholicism, a fascinating struggle. We saw it in the 17th century in the conflicts between Fenelon and Bossuet. We see it all the time between those who live it and those who only know it. And I think that this is the issue that John the Baptist is facing now as he baptizes at the Jordan. And this is the thing that we ourselves in this season of the year come to terms with? Is it something outside of ourselves we celebrate or something that is not only outside, but also within? Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.